You're going to need a Bible to stick with us this morning. Raise your hand if you didn't bring a Bible. We'll bring one to you. That makes it a lot easier. And so we're going to have a lot of folks that are going to be handing out the Bible. Thank you, John. Handing out the Bibles to you this morning. Carolyn, Patty, Brian, John. They're going to be handing out Bibles to you. So keep your hand up until you get one. And we're going to be all trying to track down the book of Malachi as we close up a five-part series on this book. The last book in the Old Testament. It is the final book before 430 years of silence between the Testaments. After Malachi the prophet speaks, the next prophet we see is John the Baptist announcing the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is a very significant book. This is a very powerful ending to it. And I hope you've enjoyed this series as much as I have. I entitled today's lesson, One Nation Under God, When God Defines the Lines for Israel. And I want to begin with a quote on the handout sheet that is in your bulletin. If you could take that out, I want to begin with a quote by J.C. Ryle in a book called Holiness. He said this, Doubts and fears have power to spoil much of the happiness of a true believer in Christ. The passage we're about to study is going to speak very deeply on the doubts and fears of Israel and how they reacted to them. In order to bring up to speed those of you that are joining us and haven't been to any of the other parts of the series, maybe you're here for the kids. You had no idea you're going to run into a buzzsaw this morning with, you know, a Malachi message and, you know, this hardcore testimony. But your friends don't like you. That's why they invited you. But anyway, what we're about to engage with is a period in Israel's history that you're not going to know without knowing the historical surrounding it. So let me give you a quick recap. 2,900 years ago, all right, we're in the year 2007, 2,900 years ago, the mighty nation of Israel that was a monarchy at the time, that was a very powerful nation that included a large area under the kings of Saul, David, Solomon, went through a national split. There became a north and a south. The north was known as Israel. The south was known as Judah. It went into this split 200 years after that date. Because of their disobedience and rebellion, God brought in discipline. And He did it through the nation of Assyria. Assyria, as a mighty empire, a pagan nation, came sweeping through, dominated, and wiped out the whole north and took them captive. 150 years later, for the exact same reason, the Babylonian empire was used by God, raised up, and wiped out the south. And Israel was no more. Not knowing what they were going to do as they were only a merely a remnant in captivity. They cried out to God and God answered their prayers. By 50 years later, they allowed them to return to their homeland, which was now desolate, devastated, torn apart, and they allowed them to rebuild. Through three successive waves, they began to rebuild the temple. Through Nehemiah, they began to rebuild the walls. And they began to rebuild this tiny, tiny nation. But they still didn't get it. They kept going through the same cycle they always went through. It was the idea of repent, fall into sin, get punished. Repent, fall into sin, get punished. Same exact cycle over and over and over. And even after these incredible blastings by being taken captive, they come back in the land and they're still messing around. 
They're either not doing, they have right hearts and not doing the right things that God asked them to do, or they're doing all the right things and their heart's completely out of whack. They can't seem to get it right on the same page at the same time, and so they keep living in rebellion. So God withholds their blessing. He had told them in a covenant a long time ago, let me make it simple for you guys, do it my way, there's blessings. Go against me, there's curses. That's it. They weren't following His will. So God withheld their blessing. Well, when you have blessing withheld from you, a frustration grows, an anger grows, and they didn't know what to do with it. They were wrestling with it. So they began to get mad at God. It couldn't possibly be their fault. So they began to say, following God is stupid. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter. I'm mad about it. Forget it all. And they were giving up on God. Doubts and fears can steal away your joy. They were wrestling with doubts. They were wrestling with fears. And they were acting out in rebellion. This last book of Malachi ends with a warning. He said, kids, I'm going to tell you again. Listen to my voice and come home. If you don't, it's just going to get uglier for you. And with that, 430 years of silence. Did they get it? Doesn't sound like it. So what did God have to say? You see, as they wrestled with this problem, one thing kept echoing in their minds. It doesn't matter to serve God, and He's not just. He's not fair. And isn't that the cry that we cry out in our lives constantly? Is that not the cry that echoed into Joanne's heart when she was in chronic pain? It's not fair. God, you don't do things fair. I'll give you the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. And I want you to burn this in your mind. In the end, God will leave no question of justice. In the end, God will leave no question of justice. Everyone will get it. Everyone will understand. And everyone will accept it. Would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3? Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, page 677 in the Bible's handed to you. Page 677. As we've gone through it line by line, verse by verse, today is going to be no different. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. I'm just going to read a couple verses and then we'll pray for the word this morning and then we'll. I'll tear it apart for you. Begins like this. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. God is unfair. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for today's message in advance because we know that every time we open the Word, if we understand it properly, there's truth. There's not only truth, there's power to transform, and that's what we are looking for today. May no one leave here the same because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Allow them to forget every one of my opinions, Lord, because I'm just guessing. And allow them to remember Your Word in their hearts. Please speak to us where we are. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. What does he mean? Does that mean that God got offended? Oh, you hurt my feelings. You said mean things to me. Now I'm going to cry. Is that what God meant? You said harsh things. Don't be so harsh to me. No, that's not at all what God said. As a matter of fact, when we rail against God and we say pretty nasty stuff to God, yeah? I mean, when we're in our anger and we're in our hate, we're dropping F-bombs, we're yelling, we're screaming at Him, and how dare you, and who do you think you are, and we're railing as strong as we can. You know what I think it looks like to God? I think it looks like when my five-year-old, she's now turning seven, when she was five, she got really mad at me one day, and you could see her whole little body was all tensed up. She goes, I am so angry at you. You're a stinker. This is one of those parental moments when you still bust her because she's not allowed to talk to her dad like that. And the whole other time you're trying not to laugh, yeah? You're like, that's it? That's all you got? Oh dear, I'm a stinker. Okay, now that's one of those things where you just want to just start bursting out laughing and going, that's lame. Try again. Okay. When we rail against God, He is able to look and go, Are you kidding me? That's what you got? You're using little bad words? Come on, you act like a child. You look like a baby when you're talking. This is, this is silly. He's probably looking at the angels. Stop laughing. This is serious. I'm correcting them. Alright? If you laugh, it ruins it. Okay? I don't believe that was the content here. I believe that he was saying the content of what you are saying is harsher than you know. It's serious. It's dark. It's not right. It's bad theology, and I won't allow it in my house. You have said harsh things against me. Yet you ask, what harsh things have we said? Now, I don't know if they're just playing stupid or they really didn't know. He said, then let me tell you, you said two things that really ticked me off. There's two things that I will answer you. I don't have to, but I will because you're my chosen people. Number one, you have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What did they just say? It's useless to follow God. Well, every human being must come to an understanding on this question. Is it or is it not useless to serve God? Because here's what we do. We play the game on the fence. I will serve God as long as it's convenient. The minute I come slamming up against something horrible in my life, or God does not fulfill my needs, I will go find my needs fulfilled elsewhere. Period. And then I'm just going to decide that I'll do it my way. Can you imagine someone actually saying it's futile to serve God? Your answer is yes. You did it yesterday. Right? How do I know that? Because right after you did it, I did it. Okay, we're all taking turns saying it's futile to serve God by the decisions we make. Anytime you sin, you're saying it's futile to serve God because he's not cutting it. He's not coming through when I asked him to come through. Then they said, what did we gain by carrying out his requirements? You ever said that? God, I'm not getting any benefit. When are you going to pick up your side and start kicking into this thing? I'm being a good guy. I'm being a good girl, and I'm not seeing you do anything. I don't deserve this, right? Isn't that our whole rights issue? You're violating my rights. I don't deserve this. How unjust are you? 
If you say, I'm not gaining anything, you're still looking at God's hand and you've missed his face. Yeah? Until you learn to move your eyes from what he can give you to who he is, we're not going anywhere. Get your eyes off his hand, get him back up to his face, because if you serve him for what he can give you, then you'll stop worshiping when the gifts stop coming. But if you worship him for who he is, his nature never changes, therefore worship can be constant. Are we all following this? But do we serve him for what we get? Yeah, we do. Is that wrong? I don't know. We're broken human beings, so I don't know. All I know is we've got to lift our eyes and get him off his hand and get him back onto his face. What did we gain by going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? In other words, when they led the reforms, when Nehemiah led reforms, he said, you guys, we're out of line. We need to repent. I want everybody dressing in black. I want it to look like we're going to a funeral. I want you to put on uh, the itchy, hairy garment called sackcloth. You put that on your skin so that you're irritated on the outside, like your heart is on the inside. And I want you to smear ashes on your forehead. And these are all signs of mourning. It's like signs that someone has died over the sin that has occurred and you're repenting. I want everyone to do that. They said, we did that and nothing happened. We did your little song and, ga- song and dance and now you haven't come through. So what was the point of all that? God, you're not doing it our way. God, you're not doing what we expect you to do. God, you're not doing your part. Blame, 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 blame. Do people really feel this way? Yeah, welcome to America. This is a Christian nation? Are you kidding me? This is a Christian hangover nation. We're not a Christian nation. But we got a lot of Christian stuff around. So, that helps us out a lot. And we could be a lot worse. If we didn't have all that hangover. But in America, we are taught all the time that there's another way to do it and that God's way isn't best. Are we going to buy into it or are we going to go counterculture? Are we going to really believe and stand up for what is right and believe that even though God may slay us, yet will we worship him? Is that not the words of Job? If I could say that and mean it every day of my life, I would know I finally get it. But I don't know if I'm mature enough to get there yet. We've got to stop following God for gain and being consumer minded. Okay, you don't come to church to get. You come to church to bring an offering to the Lord. Are we going to fill you up? Yeah, that's our job. But that's not what you come for. You've got to come ready to do ministry. You've got to come to engage with your Lord. Alright? And when you walk out here... You follow the Lord by doing His will. Obedience gives you experience with God, yeah? Amen. Look at the next line. It wasn't just everybody was saying harsh things about God. There were a few that would stand. There was a few that were righteous. Then those who feared the Lord and talked with each other and the, talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. Wait a second. What, what was the group called? Those who fear the Lord. You see that? Here's the little churchy game we play. Churchy game says the delineation line is those who show up to church and those who don't. Baloney. Those who sing loud in worship and those who don't. Baloney. Those who put on the Christian face and those who don't. 
baloney. All of that is useless. What is the delineation line that God lays down? Those who fear my name and those who do not. Those who are arrogant and still have their own way to heaven on one side. Those who know they're dying on this side. Delineation line. Those who feared the Lord, they took him seriously. They put his laws and requirements into their lives. They reacted off of it. Why? Because they needed a savior. And they knew he was Lord. Yeah. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. What were they talking about? I don't know. They're probably saying stuff like, you know what? The whole nation says this, but we all know that this is happening for our discipline. Maybe the reaction was, I believe that God is still good. And I know that our nation is horrible. I'm suffering through famine. You're suffering through famine. Horrible poverty. Everything else is going badly. But I know God is good. The answer cannot be that God is wrong. The righteous stood together and talked with each other. And what was the Lord doing? The Lord listened and He heard. The Bible says that God is attentive to the prayers of the saints. He's listening to what you're doing. He's listening to what you're saying. He's listening to what you're whispering. And then kind of a really neat thing happens next. Look at the next line. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. So what was done? The Bible seems to suggest that there's ledgers in heaven kind of funny sometimes it says the book of life was written the names of the saints and then other times it says in the acts of the people were written down both good and bad and it's like god has these little books or scrolls or parchments or whatever you want to say why don't you think god's a little bit better than an elephant i think he never forgets yeah why is he writing books why are people writing this stuff down is he just going to go and um gabriel what was his name oh that's right Frank, you can come on in. Okay, I don't think that that's the point. I think he has it locked in his head. So why does he keep writing down stuff? Well, it's funny because when he writes it down, he lets people see it being written down, right? Why? For them. Let me give you an analogy. And I've used this once before. My little three-year-old likes to pray. And so her little three-year-old prayer used to go something like this. I'd say, Andy, it's your turn to pray. All right. Dear Jesus... Help us to be thankful. Amen. I said thankful. And I said, yes, you did say thankful, honey. That's really good. Was that a good prayer? I said, yeah, it was a good prayer. Well, I I prayed to be thankful. I said, I know you did. I heard your prayer. It was right here. Okay. That was good, right? Yeah, it was good. Okay. The point is, is that immediately all children want affirmation and confirmation that what they did was not forgotten. She wanted credit right here, right now. And so it's kind of funny that in my opinion, I'm looking at this going, God doesn't need a book to remember. So why is he writing it in a book? So all the people, they'll go, did you see my good deeds? Did you see my good deeds? And they'll go, yeah, I got it right here. And they're like, but what if you forget? I'm God. I'm not going to forget. Right. Will you write it down? (laughs) Will I write it down? Okay. Michael, can you write it down, please? Thank you very much. Oh, look, we're writing down your good deeds. We're not going to forget. It's so funny because God seems to treat us like the little children we are. So a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who fear the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. They will be mine. 
God's greatest gift is His presence with you. What is heaven? God's eternal presence. What is hell? An eternity without God, yeah? God's greatest gift is not stuff, but who He is being with you. And so he said, you tell me that there's no blessing, there's no benefit from serving me. Don't you understand you get to be with me? Yeah, but that's not going to drive me down the road. Yeah, but that's not going to be my big new house. But you'll have me. All that stuff burns away. You have me. Yeah, but do you understand how immature that is? You have the greatest gift I could ever give you which is me with you. You will be mine if you love me. Hmm. If you follow me, if you take me seriously, if you live with me, you will be mine. He said, by the way, you think that the wicked get away with everything. Let me give you a little snippet. Let me give you a little future view. Picks it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. That means, oh, it's coming. For sure. Surely the day is coming. What day? The day of the Lord. The day of the return when Jesus Christ will ride in as a rider on the white horse, king of kings written across his thigh with a sword taken out of its sheath, raised up for judgment. Oh, that day will come. He said, let us be very clear on that. I'm not going to tell you when. I'm just telling you it's going to happen. Surely that day is coming and it will burn like a furnace. That's the only phrase in the Bible that says that it will burn right here in Malachi. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And on that day it is coming, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Ah, fire of consumption. Earlier on in Malachi, he talked about a fire coming upon Israel, a fire of purification. He called it a refiner's fire. Do you remember that? Where you burn up the metals and scoop off the dross or the impurities and throw them away and they become purified. That is a fire of purification. That's not this fire. The fire of purification is for those that are God's treasured possession. For his enemies, there is a different sort of fire. A fire of consumption. A fire of complete burn. Now, this is not teaching the doctrine of annihilation, that everyone goes, well, there's not really a hell. All the evil is just going to be consumed. And then so you either go to heaven or poof, you're gone. No, 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 no. Bible real clear, right? Real simple on one fact, eternal destiny, either in lake of fire or in heaven. Real clear. If that is the case, he said, you keep telling me that the wicked get away with things. No one's getting away with anything. You keep telling me that I am unjust. You keep telling me that I'm prospering. You even use the word that I'm building up the wicked, that somehow I'm helping them out. Or somehow I'm an impotent God that can't do what I want to do and I can't run my own universe. You keep telling me that either I don't care or I can't handle my job. I can't handle my job. I will come back. I'm just patient with you. Yeah? Those are the parts where I get all worked up. 
But for you who revere my name, for you who take me seriously and honor me, both in lifestyle and deed and in heart, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, said the Lord Almighty. He said, you say there's no benefit. I tell you, you will not only have me, but in my wings I will bring healing to you. I will heal the deepest part of you. And someday there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. For when I arrive, I bring peace. When I arrive, I bring joy. As a matter of fact, you'll be so full of joy, you'll do the baby cow dance. You see that? It's in the Bible right there. Like little cows that are in a stall that have all this pent-up energy that just want to go out and run, you open up the gate and they do the cow dance. Do, do, do. They just run around all over the place. He said, when I arrive, I will bring such intense joy to those that are my children, everyone will do the baby cow dance. And they will run around. I had to do dancing at the women's tea the other night. It was Russ and I and 350 women. Yet Russ and I had to dance with the ventriloquist dummy in front of everyone. No one has known such humiliation and embarrassment except to dance with a dummy in front of a large crowd. We did the jingle bell dance. Anyway, we're moving on. He gives a little snippet. He said, if we're going to make it through this, you must know this. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, if you're going to make it, if you're going to keep away these doubts and fears, if you're going to understand true theology, if you are going to get me, know my word. Do not neglect the word of God, he said. You study it, you learn it, because that is my will concerning mankind. If you keep it away from you, you'll slip and slide. You adhere to my word, every word of it, because that is truth. And that will keep you safe. Then he finishes with these words. Yet again, a snippet of prophecy into the future. He said, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, meaning back to the true faith of the patriarchs, the forefathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Indeed, the last book of the Old Testament ends with a warning. I will send Elijah. I will come. What do you mean you're going to send Elijah? Well, you guys remember who Elijah is, yeah? Old Testament prophet that got to do all the cool miracles. The guy that set up the two altars and called down fire from heaven. Bam! It comes flying out and burns everything up. You remember that guy. He's walking with his protege, Elisha. Another great prophet. And as they're walking along, they're separated because out of the sky rides a fiery chariot that picks up Elijah and takes him back into heaven. The guy never died. And all of a sudden, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends. And who shows up? But Moses and Elijah. There he is again. In the Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, that talks about the end time events and the last coming of Christ, 
It speaks of two prophets that will come, that will preach loudly in the streets of Jerusalem. Everyone will hate their guts. They'll be able to do miracles. And it says fire will come out of their mouths and consume people. Does that mean the Word of God? I don't know what it means. It's just a prophetic utterance and I don't understand it. But these prophets will go through and irritate the whole world as they speak truth, as they speak judgment. And then they will be killed. God will give the power to the enemy to kill them. And they will lie in the streets as the world rejoices for three days. And at the end of that three days, they rise back up again in the shock and awe of everyone observing. They say their final words and they ascend back into heaven. Is that going to be Elijah? Another guy didn't die in the Bible. Enoch, he was taken up in a whirlwind. Is it Enoch and Elijah? Is it Moses and Elijah? Why not just make two new ones, Bob and Larry? Nothing speaks prophecy like a tomato and a cucumber. I'm just saying. Jesus suggested and linked this phrase to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, that he was the Elijah that was to come. But I think there's more to the story. But we're left with a decision. We close with this. There's no closing song. There's just us praying together. And we're left with a decision. As Joshua, the mighty leader that was the follow-up protege of Moses, as he led the people into the promised land, he brought them to a valley of decision. And this is what I love about Christianity, is it's so intensely practical. It's not a pie in the sky, leap of faith, blah, 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 put your brain at the door. None of that. Absolutely practical. I believe it's a description of the true reality. My worldview makes sense when I look through the lenses of Scripture and look at Jesus Christ. He brought him to a valley of decision and he said this. Behold, I set before you today a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. If serving Yahweh or the personal God of Israel seems right to you, then follow him wholeheartedly. If it does not seem right to you, go your own way, but make a decision. Wow. Pretty practical. What are you going to do? You got a message, you got Joanne's experience, you got the kids leading you through the salvation message. When you die, where are you going? Is kind of the point, yeah? Christmas suggests that there is a Savior. But you got to do something with Him, yeah? We have a decision. What are you going to do with what you've heard now? Will you be different as you walk out of here? Because even though we don't live under the old covenant about blessings and curses, I still believe that the sin in our lives stops us from being blessed the way that we could be blessed. Why? Because when your kid's being a spoiled brat, you don't give him more gifts. So we don't get a chance to be blessed the way God wants to bless us. Because we're spoiled. Doesn't mean he hates you. It means he's trying to raise you up strong. So he holds back gifts, holds back blessing. In that process, will you submit under his leadership or will you say, God, you're not fair? Here's our choice. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for being so incredibly loving that you set before us some decisions to make some decisions to engage with you afresh or to walk out the same.
I pray, Lord, that we would listen to your word, do something with your word. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.